Hi, and welcome to the City Age podcast. I'm Alon Markovich, Managing Director of City Age, and I'm here with Anna Stafford, our Content and Programming Lead at City Age. Hello. Anna, it was so nice to see you in Vancouver last week. We were we were hosting our first summit since the pandemic, our first in-person summit. Now we're kind of halfway through the year and it's spring. I know. Cities are so much better in the spring, in my opinion. Aren't they? I, I, I think cities are at their best when springtime hits and everybody gets that extra jolt of energy. It's a rejuvenation. And we see you know so much happening in the city that has been a little bit dormant. So not that cities are bad in winter, but come springtime, they just shine, in my opinion. I totally agree. I wonder what Bruce would say about this. Our guest today is Bruce Katz. Bruce is the director of the NOAC Metro Finance Lab at Drexel University and one of the co-founders of the new Localism. He helps cities design, finance, and deliver transformative initiatives that promote inclusive and sustainable growth. Bruce regularly advises global, national, state, regional, and, and metropolitan and municipal leaders on public reforms and private innovations that advance the well-being of metropolitan areas, and not only that, also their countries. By the way, if this sounds like I'm reading off a bio, it kind of is because Bruce has done so much and is continuing to do so much. To call him the godfather of cities would probably be the wrong term, but he, there's, there's no bigger, more authoritative uh, figure in our industry than Bruce. We're so lucky to have him. Bruce is also the co-author of The New Localism, How Cities Can Thrive in the Age of Populism. And the Metropolitan Revolution, How Cities and Metros Are Fixing Our Broken Politics and Fragile Economy. Both books focus on the rise of cities and city networks as the world's leading problem solvers, which is at the core of what we're all about here at City Age. Like I said, we're very happy, very pleased, and lucky to have them. And I hope you enjoyed the interview. Anna, what did you and Bruce talk about specifically? So our conversation was really about that unique power that cities have to solve our biggest problems or the way I like to think about it is the capacity for cities to act as vehicles for change. So whether that's positive changes for the planet, society and equity, or sustainable economic growth. Bruce really talks a lot about how the organizational structure of governance in a city really allows it to take on those issues in an interdisciplinary and interconnected way because cities are led by networks of private, public, and civic leaders. They're not just the municipal government. So that's what we were mainly chatting about. Something I'll say is that most of this conversation is about American cities in particular. So it is kind of colored by the specific economics and politics of America. But I think there's lots of lessons for cities all over the world. But he draws on a lot of wisdom and knowledge from cities all over the world as well. I hope you all enjoy listening to Bruce as much as I do because he simply is the leader in this field and we're so privileged that we have him. Without further ado, here is Bruce Katz. Hi, Bruce. It's great to have you here. Uh, you've been a friend of City Ages for a while now, so we're thrilled to have you as one of our first guests on our new show. Thank you for being here. Well, thanks for having me. It's great to be with you. Great. So I want to jump right in. I recently was reading a talk that you gave where you called the current time that we're living in the new disorder. Can you describe what you mean by that a little bit? I think we are seeing a series of disruptive and even destructive dynamics that really compel us to think more deeply about the role of cities, the future of cities technological innovation, whether it's robotics or genomics or 
artificial intelligence that's really now coming to full fruition. Some of policy itself, the large investment packages uh, that are being sent through the system and by the federal government in the U.S., forcing or, or catalyzing the electrification of the auto sector. I mean, the list goes on and on. And then finally, the Ukraine itself. I mean, I, I think the Ukrainian war is uh, already destabilizing politics in the U.S. and Europe, um, obviously boosting energy prices, but, but it's really leading, I think, to a different kind of geopolitical order, which will clearly affect cities going forward. That may be the biggest effect at this moment. Can you talk to me a little bit about what this means for the future of cities? And I know you share our vision that cities are vehicles for great change and problem solving. So can you tell me a little bit about what this means for cities and what role cities can play in maybe solving some of these problems? Well, the, the reason why I raise all these broader you know, macro dynamics is that at the end of the day, they will visit cities <laughs> you know, in predictable and unpredictable ways. And then cities, because they're not governments, they're networks of, of public, private, civic, community institutions, they will have to navigate through these dynamics and then ultimately, when they can, uh, resolve them in multi-sector and inter- interdisciplinary ways. You know, everything gets thrown at cities at the end of the day. And then um, cities, obviously, through these network effects, uh, try to both manage and master the new disorder. Even at a time of just immense federal investment, you know, and the media obviously will constantly focus first on the legislative machinations that got us here. I mean, you just Google Senator Manchin and you'll, you'll see <laughs> what that looked like last year. But, but, but going forward with the, you know, federal infrastructure funds flowing, frankly, I think whether, whether Build Back Better will be successful or not will depend on local agency, whether cities and metropolitan areas are able to design and then deliver game-changing initiatives, or whether we're just going to have you know, fragmented entities do their own thing, so to speak, and then the, we're not going to have the transformative effect that we really need to have. I'm wondering if you can sort of tell me what your thesis is in terms of the power that cities have right now. I know you think a lot about power moving from the federal level down to the municipal level for a few key reasons. Can you tell us a little bit about what kind of your core idea is there? Yeah, I think that the core idea is that cities really are um, the deciders in our system about what gets practically done. I mean, we have all this infrastructure funding flowing in our system right now. Now it's flowing through hundreds of programs across dozens of agencies. It, it's your legacy federal government, essentially, compartmentalized, balkanized, specialized. It's a Rubik's Cube of programming, essentially. So cities are, are basically looking at all this funding, raining down like matter from heaven and saying, okay, we're the ones who have to make some collective sense of all this. Because at the end of the day, it's not as if cities operate with port investments or airport investments or road investments or energy or broadband being separate from each other. They're all usually in similar territories, the same territories, a downtown, a waterfront, an industrial corridor, you know, a neighborhood so cities have to make sense of all this compartmentalized, vertically oriented federal money because cities are horizontal. 
they sort of operate across systems and they act like entrepreneurs. And so the real interesting piece right now is whether cities have the capacity, the, the, the community trust to braid and blend all these different investments in the service of some big outcomes. So I think this is a real test of new localism. So how do cities take advantage of the position they're in, both structurally and with their sort of intimate awareness of what the problems are? How do they take that position and make the most of it to really see actual change? Yeah, and I, I, I think the starting point is really the federal government is an investor. All these different entities, authorities, agencies, private sector, corporations, nonprofit. Deliveries. I mean, they're the ones actually doing the work. There's power in doing the work. I think that's the power. It's the power of agency and the power of network governance. You know, the question is, can cities declare their priorities based on evidence and expertise that is intensely local and then act on it with some, you know, stickiness, you know, stay focused on growing or reducing, let's say, racial and ethnic disparities on income, health, and wealth, or, you know, helping bypass communities be lifted in, a, in an equitable way. I mean, you know, it's easy to write press releases about this stuff, and it's, you know, which is what the national government tends to do, and use language which all sounds good. But at the end of the day, the doing is hard. What cities are you seeing do this really well right now? Well, I think some cities have had a culture of collaboration and formal institutions to enable that, not around everything, but around certain things, for quite some time. Northeast Ohio, Cleveland, Youngstown, Canton, Akron have built structures, you know, collaborative structures around advanced manufacturing, advanced industries. Indianapolis, the Central Indiana Corporate Partnership has done that. So there's some places that have been doing this for decades, and you can see the benefits and the results from that. There are others like St. Louis that only recently have found that new modus operandi. They merged multiple business leadership and civic organizations into the greater STL. They have a 2030 jobs plan that I was happy to participate on. I mean, there are some places that um, really were characterized by division rather than unity for quite some time, but they're now marshalling their resources to, to move forward. So, the, frankly, the federal government does not dictate, mandate collaboration. It just sends money down verticals and hopes for the best. <laughs> you know? And so it really is a question of local will and local organizing to basically leverage that to its fullest extent. It sounds like the private industry has a pretty critical role to play here. What happens in a city if some of the major players in the private industry aren't on board with this whole plan for their city's economic growth, or they aren't in tune with the government or with civic leaders? Uh, what happens in a city, or have you seen a city where those key private players aren't necessarily invested in that collective vision. At the end of the day, in this country, uh, the anchor institutions, large corporations, large universities, hospitals, government itself have to work harder 
for the places in which they're located because the federal government is unreliable and the states are hostile most of the time. So anchor institutions really matter. And if they decide to distance themselves from the places in which you're located, a whole bad you know, parade of horribles occur um, because their, their role is not just as you know, a center of great employment or as a generator of tax revenue. I mean, where they really can have a large-scale effect is on workforce diversity and business diversity through procurement of goods and services and neighborhood effects, because many of these universities um, or other private actors are located literally a walk away from high-poverty neighborhoods. So you can tell the difference between a city where the anchor institutions are fully committed to place and those where they're just not quite engaged. And that dictates uh, a lot about how cities perform economically and socially. I, I know you've spoken a lot about how kind of a starting point for a city is figuring out what you're good at and then being the best version of that. Have you come across any cities that are struggling to identify the thing that they're good at uh, without insulting any cities? Um, is that something that you come across? Yeah, I think I think the difficulty at times is from an economic perspective. You know, what industries have you been in? You know, how have they evolved over decades and so forth? That's an easier thing to identify. You know, we're really good at this particular sector of the economy because that's the reason why the city was founded in the first place. Or that's what we were literally doing 125 years ago. But that's a tangible you know, piece of evidence. What's less tangible is the different cultural norms, you know, in cities and, um, you know, how people interact with each other, what they love about their city. I mean, that's what's so interesting about the U.S. because you can go into places that economically are not doing that well and haven't been doing that well for a while. But still, there's this unbelievable level of commitment and sense that we are different, you know, and we're authentic in this way and we need to build on that. And I really appreciate that. It's just, you know, it requires more qualitative, you know, an assessment than a quantitative, you know, punch the numbers and see what comes out of the computer, you know. Yeah, it sounds like uh, the brand of a city or the story of a city becomes very important um, here, which is a little bit, like you say, hard to quantify. How can a city go about uh, figuring out what its story is? Is that about the arts? Is that about cultural investment? Can you say a bit more about that? It could be about arts, culture, you know, putting children's center, you know, making children the centerpiece of our cities social mobility writ large. Our cities are engines of social mobility, particularly for a country that's so demographically diverse. You know, people come to the U.S. and, and find networks, ecosystems that are really quite supportive and are able to have that intergenerational effect. Now, that's what's broken down because of a lot of the structural racism. I mean, it is the original sin of this country. So I... I, but I, I think cities see themselves more as the vehicles for mobility, social and economic mobility, partly because the national government is an unreliable partner. 
it's corrected itself. You know, we do have the Affordable Care Act, et cetera. But as you can tell from the last two years, what seemed like a no-brainer, you know, we should reduce poverty through providing more support for families with children. I mean, get a grip. I mean, like, like of course we should do that. We can't seem to do that as a country. It's just absolutely maddening. I know you've spoken about how cities have sort of a unique ability to look long term, especially because they aren't really at the whim of election cycles and political parties to the same extent that the federal government is. But what do you think short term success would look like for a city? So in the next three to five years, what do you think are the markers of positive change in that window of time? Well, I, you know, just because of this odd moment of federal investment, you know, the short term, you know, signs of success is, you know, don't blow it, right? <laughs> so, I mean, right? It's like, uh, think about infrastructure with a purpose. Infrastructure is not an end, it's a means to an end. Like, so what do you want to achieve? You can, as Barcelona did, you can, you know, braid and blend infrastructure in the service of building a whole innovation hub in your city, uh, twenty the 22 Act District. You can use infrastructure to enhance the reshoring of production, um, perhaps around your airport, or, you know, I, I would say the Eastern Seaboard is going to improve their ports for the staging of wind turbines and offshore wind. So that's, that's a purpose of infrastructure. The greening of the economy, inclusive growth, supplier and workforce diversity, technological innovation. Columbus has done a remarkable job around technological innovation in the transportation sector. So every time we, we think about infrastructure, it's what are we trying to do with these investments? Because just building the project is not the end. It's, it's in the service of something broader. And I think there could be many wins in the next three to five to seven years if we think about those, you know, broader outcomes we want for our communities and then use infrastructure to propel them and catalyze it, accelerate. Thank you. Well, I, I want to ask you a couple questions just to sort of end our discussion that are a bit more personal. How did you first become interested in cities? What sort of set you on this career path originally? Well, I grew up in Brooklyn, New York, and my, at that time, my high school, public high school, offered six months as an intern in, you know, whatever job or occupation or sector you wanted to work in. Um, a good friend of mine who became a, you know, Broadway director decided to, you know, go to uh, the public theater, Joseph Papp's Theater, you know, because I, I've, I'm, I guess I'm, I'm, you know, sort of less capable. I went to work for the city council. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I just got hooked. I mean, just completely hooked on uh, both public policy, but also city building. I have some rapid fire questions to ask you now, just to sort of close out. What's the best advice you've ever gotten? Um, pursue your passion. What's the buzzword that you wish you could get rid of? Bottom line. What's your favorite thing you have in your office? The favorite thing I have in my office is a Spanish edition of Italo Calvino's Invisible Cities, which is, I think, the best book ever written about cities. I have bought 
dozens and dozens of copies of this book just to give out to people because I spent a bunch of time in uh, the Spanish-speaking world, Spanish versions of the book as well. Can you tell me more about why it's your favorite book? Every chapter is about an imaginary city, which really enables you to think uh, more cogently about our own time and place. You know, and every time I read the book, I can never remember which chapter is my favorite because every time I read the book, there's like a new favorite. Because, you know, you evolve with time and change. And, and so the book is just, you know, it's like music. It's like, you know, it's, it's, it's like literature generally. I mean, you just constantly experience it differently. What's the city that surprised you the most, either in a good or a bad way? I, I would say the most surprising city has been Tel Aviv for me. You know, I went there as a child and had it back for a long time, and it is just an electric city. And it's hard to really, really almost describe, you know, the vibe and this, the level of energy and possibility in a, in a very complicated society. I think sort of a through line I've seen from our conversation and from your work before is that it does seem like there's this sort of elusive quality of something you can't really quantify. It has to do with like the vibe of a city or its brand or its story or the energy that's there. And I like that because I think it sort of reminds us that cities are about the people who live there. No, absolutely. And I spend with all this incredible amount of time I have in my head, I would say I spent, I, I'm more focused on fiction than nonfiction. And fiction helps you think about cities, I think, more even than nonfiction. Um, because it's really, they're, they're, they're portraits of people. And I think products of imagination, too. I think problem solving in an era where it's sort of uncharted territory does require a certain amount of what if and imagination, which I was an English major. So I always think there's lots of value in novels and fiction. So Absolutely. I agree with you. Yeah. OK, well, thank you, Bruce. We really appreciate having you on the show. Well, thanks for having me. Absolute pleasure. And we're back. That was awesome. Honestly, I, I don't. I'm, I'm. I'm not blowing smoke up his skirt. I. I could listen to Bruce all day. I recently had a chance to. Bruce was with us at a roundtable that City Age put on last month in Washington D.C. And there were about 20, 25 senior leaders in the room. And when Bruce spoke, you could almost hear a pin drop. It was. He's just such a authoritative voice on these issues that. And you mentioned it also that he draws from international stories about cities elsewhere on the globe. And he just does that naturally because he just knows so much. He's a repository of, you know, it's, it's the old cliche that he's probably forgotten more about cities than I'll ever know. But it's always wonderful to, to listen to Bruce. Something I really notice about, I, this is the second time I've interviewed Bruce for a, a City Age project. Something I always notice about him is he's really obviously truly passionate about what he's talking about. It's not just his job. You can tell it's what he thinks about all the time, especially that came across in the rapid fire questions when uh, his answer about his favorite thing in his office, which is that book about imaginary cities. I thought it was so cool that he 
that he offered that is his response because it shows that passion, but it was also just kind of a moving way to end the conversation. Mm-hmm. We did a great job. I'm glad we had that interview and I'm, I hope the audience loves it. Um, what, what are we talking about this week in the story? That we, we still don't have a name for this segment. It's not to say that we haven't gotten some good ideas, but they don't, none of them really jump off the page. So we're welcoming any ideas to info at cityage.com if you have ideas for what this should be called. But for now, we're, I think we're still calling it from CityH Slack or something like that. Uh, so tell us about the story you'd like to share this week. Um, This week's story is about a new mixed-use development opening in Maryland called The Third, with funding from the county. It's a hub for entrepreneurs who are women of color to help them get access to funding, skill building, and other resources. So this is a response to the fact that it's much harder to get funding for your startup if you're a woman of color. The article offers some numbers on that for people who are interested. But what I really like about this story is that it captures how important the built environment is to responding to something like this. So mixed-use developments like this help shape the social fabric of a city, especially when it's public space that's accessible, um, which builds more equity into a city but it also facilitates social connection. So the article talks about how the hub will help provide resources to these entrepreneurs, but that it's also designed to be a place of gathering for them so they can learn from each other and connect with each other, which I thought was really cool. You know what I like about that article is that it's optimistic. What Mm -hmm. you just said, it's hard to believe that here we are in the 21st century. And we're not just like a couple years into the 21st century. (laughs) No, we're well into it. Yeah, we're well into it. And we're still dealing with this clear inequity Mm-hmm. This clear imbalance and how so many cities have managed to ignore that for so long can really be depressing. It can be overwhelming. And this initiative, the third, feels optimistic as opposed to demoralizing. So it's an excellent piece. Thank you for thank you for sharing it. And where is that available for, for our listeners? It's linked in the show description, and it'll also be in our newsletter, which will come out the week after this episode airs. Which, given the way podcasts are listened to after who knows how many weeks, it'll be probably best to find it on the show description on the cityage.com website. So the next episode in, the, in our series, in our season, we are exploring a new approach to building sustainable cities, one where cities live in unison with and learn from the natural world as opposed to fighting it every step of the way. Uh, we had an event about the natural city earlier this year, a wonderful success demonstrating Houston and how they're working with with biomimicry. So I'm excited to hear this feature. Look forward to it. Hope you all join us. Remember, this is the City Age podcast. You can't build the future alone. So we'll see you next time.